Man, it feels good to be living eternally. I'm forgiven without a care in the world. Just catch me coasting and dipping. Catch me moving around. I love exploring this world. In and out of my town, I walk around. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to that Post Mill podcast where our king reigns more than Seattle in the springtime. But um, psh. I love Seattle. I get it. I love Seattle. Dustin, why is it why is it that when you're not with us, we have to try to make up jokes and we suck at it, but when you are with us, you don't have jokes? What happened? The Amu. That Dispy. I don't know. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you had one job, Dustin. One job. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what are you guys all, what are you all drinking tonight? I'm drinking uh, dog, Dogfish Head 60-Minute IPA, bro. It's like one of my favorite. Oh, nice. It's one of my go-tos, yeah. Nice. When I'm not, if I could just... Uh, but it's not go-to IPA. No, no, it's not go. No, it's my personal go. One of my go tos. Yeah, Dustin, you recently tried a, a really good beer of some sort, right? What was it? Oh, what was that? I don't even remember. I don't drink enough beer. I drink more bourbon. You, what did What did you have? What did you have that was from Tanner? Oh yeah. So lately, I don't know if, if everyone here listens to the Reform Pubcast, but Tanner mentioned. Uh, I don't know. By the time this was launched, maybe a few episodes ago, his uh, his personal recipe for uh, whiskey sour and my wife does not like whiskey of any sort any variety and i got her to try this and this is her new favorite drink so we've been having them non-stop this summer good stuff what is it uh the the, the two kind of secret ingredients that he that he says are essential are um fresh squeezed lemon you can't use any like concentrate or anything from the little you know the little squeezy yellow lemon um, so you squeeze it yourself or do you juice it? I think the best thing, we have this this handheld device that you like cut it in half and stick it in there and squeeze it and it gets like all the juice out. So fresh squeezed lemon and then uh, you got to have uh, uh, egg whites. That's the other thing, which was a little, wasn't sounding very appetizing to me, but it gives it this, it's the viscosity. It makes it a little foamy and you, you shake it really well. So it's it's perfect. You put a lot of ice in there to get it cold and then you strain it and it's it's nice on a Any warm day. Any particular type of whiskey that you recommend, like bourbon, or what, what did you do? Yeah, I use I use bourbon. Um, so I've done a, a mixture between Tanner's recipe and Les's recipe. Les is cheap cheap uh, bourbon with the whiskey sour powder mix, which is on the disgusting end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's, that's Tanner's gross. is on the good end. Yeah, where he uses good bourbon with all the good ingredients. So I go half and half, and so far I've been mostly using a cheaper bourbon with the good ingredients, and it, it's pretty good. I think once maybe once I start making a little more money, I'll start using the nicer bourbon. I drink we nice. drink we drink these too often to to use the high end stuff. <laughs> I don't mean to be like a stickler, but if you're gonna mix anything with bourbon, just use the cheap stuff. That's kind of where I'm at. I, I usually drink bourbon straight, so I like the good stuff. But if I'm mixing it. I'm not going to tell the difference that much. Yeah, I just pretty much prefer scotch to everything else that's liquor. So, except for tonight, <laughs> Colin is sipping sipping on white Zinfandel. No, it's a red Zinfandel. Oh, sorry, red oh, Zinfandel. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some uh, some bourbon that Adam sent me. Some McKenna tenure. It's good stuff. Ooh, I haven't tried that. that yeah, good. yeah, it is good. That is good, man. When I do bourbon, wow. it's usually bullet. Bullet, dude, bullet is good. Is it bullet or bullet? That's good stuff. It's really good. Bullet is good because it's uh, it's more of a, like a lighter. I like the rye. I'll sleep over here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're drinking water. <laughs> no, actually, because I I listened to the 
podcast where he uh, talked about young and restless guys who have beards and drink alcohol, Colin, and I, I'm going to be abstaining. <laughs> yeah, le- the article that Les wrote that was a satire, <laughs> satirical version of the blog mm-hmm. article um, was Hilarious. probably one of the funniest things that I've read in a long it time. Was fun. It was great. So that was on that was on the Reform Pub website, reformpub.com, right? Is that right? Yeah, you can get Tanner's recipe on there too. <laughs> I, I listened to the whole episode of, well, not the whole episode, the but like the last fifty minutes of the was just him basically going on a rant about the Reform Pub. I think he's he's had a there, there's been an issue between Reform Pubcast and them for a little bit and. Yeah, this is what I this is what I hear. The the objection that I've heard from people, which doesn't make any sense to me, is they say it's called the Reformed Pub. And so because the word reformed is in it, it should be ninety nine point nine nine percent hardcore theology discussion. But Les and Tanner have it as like, you know, fifty percent discussion about beer and stuff, fifty percent discussion about cultural issues and a little bit of discussion about theology tossed in here and there and there's nothing wrong with that, but people, for some reason, like they have this, they have this weird Jesus meter concept. Like you, you have to talk about Jesus for so much percent of your podcast, otherwise, it's not holy enough for us. <laughs> I wonder what they would, th- wonder what they would think about that post mill. <laughs> well, you, you look at it, and they just got done with that tulip series, which was amazing. They had, I mean, James Wade, Arthur Sproul, just so t- awesome guys on there. Like to to bash on them that they don't talk enough theology. I mean, I feel like half their episodes they. It's more than half theology. Yeah. And I think, and I think too, like neither of them are elders in their church. I mean, they're laymen. And so they don't consider themselves teachers. And so they don't, they just don't do that. They talk about what they believe and why they believe it and issues that were, they're working through personally, but they don't consider themselves like a ministry that teaches people about God's word because that's just not, that's just not what they do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I find that refreshing. It's like, it's different. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's like a, it's, it's refreshing just to turn it on and have some fun and listen. And they're, and I mean, they're spirit filled men though. I mean, so there, there are times when they'll say some things you're just like, man, amen. And then there's some other things where you're just laughing and having a good time, just like the real world. That's life, you know? And if you want to hear what it's like to be in med school, I mean, it's just really fascinating. Tanner always talks about what's going on in his life, which is 99% med school. So Yeah, yeah, good stuff. So, yeah, so check out their new site, reformpub.com. They've got a bunch of bloggers on there. Um, they've got a, their own comic strip. They got a Facebook group called Reform Pub, and reformpub.com, I think, is their website, right? That new website looks great. I don't know who is in charge of making that website look so good, but it looks really good. I think Les did that. Yeah. Well, Dustin, I'm sorry. This may be your last week on the show. We're going to call Les and see if he wants to join because Let's let's get us into some discussion about uh, voting. We've got the, right. the voting season coming up here pretty soon. Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush just uh, just announced that he's running. So we're, we're you know we, we could possibly be looking at Bush, the second sequel. So that's uh, that's exciting <laughs> to some people. I love a good trilogy. We have Hillary Clinton, so that'll be Clinton Part Two. I'm I'm not gonna lie, guys. Like Star Wars Episode Five was the only good sequel, so <laughs> yeah. we should just. Dude, Lethal Weapon 2. 
Lethal Weapon 2 was really good. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. It was really good. Lethal Weapon 3, they should have stopped after 2. But Jurassic Park, what? I mean, that's, they just, they went down another. Have you guys seen Jurassic World yet? No. Not yet, but I've heard that it made a lot of money, but wasn't that great. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I liked them all. They weren't, they weren't that great, but I like the story. Yeah, I, I'm probably going to go see it even if it sucked. So, so voting. Yeah, voting. Who, who else is in the, who else is in the running? Rand Paul. Rand Paul's really big amongst uh, a lot of my brothers in the faith, man. They really love Rand Paul. The only one of us who's not here right now actually happened to meet him in person and take a picture and put it on Facebook. Adam Moore. Adam got to meet him. Check out his Facebook page. He's got a picture with Rand Paul. I think he even said that he doesn't necessarily agree with everything that uh, that he says, but it was uh, he enjoyed meeting him. Yeah. Well, let's let's get to the most important candidate of all. Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump seriously a candidate or was that a joke? I, I don't I, I think he was gonna run. I don't know if he's I, I think he was talked out of it, yeah. Because that that would be possibly the stupidest thing that I've heard of in a long time. Hey, I'm from Minnesota. We had Jesse Ventura as a governor, so <laughs> anything can happen. Dude, he has a great that show about We got Al Franken as a senator. Conspiracy theory show is great. Like I I don't know. That was good. <laughs> I like Jesse. Oh yeah. Okay, so voting. What 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 are uh, Dustin? What are your opinions on voting? Should we do it? Should we not do it? What's what's the most important thing about it? You know, I always used to just think um, of you know the lesser of evil kind of mindset. Which ones? You know, definitely not anything liberal minded. When it, when it comes down to it, it was just who's going to do the least amount of harm. But I think the last couple times I, I struggled with. I think I voted last time, but the time before that I didn't. Because I've been just this internal struggle of even if I'm voting, and I got this from Doug Wilson, even if I'm voting for the lesser of the evil, I'm still voting for an evil. If, you know, I think we talked about it in a previous episode where the liberals are driving towards a cliff and the 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 Republican is just, you know, driving a little bit slower, but he's still going in the same direction. So it's still putting my, I struggle with putting my name behind somebody that I don't 100% agree with. And I know I'll never agree 100% with somebody, but at least on the major issues. Um, so I, I, for me, I think last time I voted, I don't even remember what party it was in, but it was a guy who I pretty much agreed with everything, but I knew, you know, he didn't have much of a chance. But yeah, I don't know. That's something I want to look more into, especially since we had Joel McDermott on um, and thinking about what uh, what we can be doing to be um, making changes, especially on the in the the local level and having more impact. I definitely want to spend a little more time studying that and seeing what I think would be the best use of, you know, my vote and even if I should use it. So I'm curious to see what you guys have to say. John, what do you think? Yeah, I think that when it comes to, when it comes to voting, I think that, well, let me just back up, like the whole conservative liberal thing. I, I think that when we make that dichotomy today, um, it's not the same kind of thing as it was like in the seventies or in the sixties. I think that when we say we were mm-hmm. conservative or liberal right now, basically what we're saying is um, in which way, uh, which in which way is the party going to bring tyranny to the people? Is it going to be through warmongering? Because uh, it's big spending and it's big government either way. And that used to be the distinction between liberal and conservative. Uh, but now we have uh, conservatives that they want to spend the same money, if not more, just on different things. And it all comes back to the same thing, violating God's law, stealing from people, oppression, tyranny, all those things. And and so I think that we as Christians have have a duty to take that seriously. And a lot of us Christians think that because someone says they're a conservative, 
then they must be they and they they go to church that they must be okay and it, it, I think it's and I'm not saying that any candidate is I'm not saying that there are candidates that are not Christians or anything like that I'm not even doing that right now but what I'm saying is that we need we as Christians need to be responsible to understand that when we vote we're making a statement um, and we're we're and we're we're putting our name behind somebody. the whole argument of voting for the lesser two evils the whole idea of throwing your vote away i think is just a fallacy i think that's really redundant especially when we understand how the electoral college works anyway um so christians when we vote i'm not saying don't vote but what i what i do think is that we really are missing the boat if we think that our vote is that's our responsibility is just to vote um i think that as christians we need we can vote go ahead and vote for the white house my personal opinion is that the White House and Congress and the federal government is is impossible for us to reach because we haven't built a ladder to get there yet. Uh, we need to take we need to um, we need to work to build up there. And I think it starts again with I would highly recommend uh, Joe McDermott's book, which we've already discussed with him on here. Restoring America it talks about the local government as one of those 10 areas in the book. But localism, local government, if we as Christians get involved in the local government, your city councils, uh, the county, county commissions, mayor of a small town. I mean, all these, these are all political positions that are very influential for those people that are living right next to you that you don't have to have a lot of money and a lot of lobbyists and a lot of, uh, like you don't have to be a lawyer with millions of dollars to be a mayor of like Dunedin or Clearwater or, or a little town like that. But you can do a lot of good in that position. And I think that if we begin to focus on voting in the local government and giving our money to those causes and our resources, I think that we'll see a lot more. And what I mean by more is gospel movement, because the gospel is more than just going to heaven and saving souls. The gospel is whole the whole world. And so there's a politic involved. There's uh, worship involved. There's family involved. All of these things. So I'm not saying don't vote. Redemption of creation. Yeah, I'm not saying don't. Yeah, exactly. Redem re culture. Redemption of all things, right? So I'm not saying don't vote. But what I, I do want to get out to my brothers and sisters is that if all you do is go to the voting booth, if you get really fired up about a candidate, but you're not doing anything locally, I just I would want to challenge that. And I'm not, I am not. don't want to judge you because I, I, I get it. Um, and everyone has their own situation. But I do want to challenge that. Like what... How, like, you're very fired up. Obviously, you have a lot of passion about Rand Paul, for example. If I were to pick a candidate right now, that's probably the one I'd pick just right now without looking into a lot of them. Um, even though he has some things, I mean, he's big government in a lot of ways. Um, but even that, like, I could vote for Rand Paul, but that's a vote that I need to, I want to eventually, I want my children to have a godly president. I believe that can happen. I want to see God's law as a standard of the land. I want to see a gospel movement. I want to see a revival and an awakening um, in, in my nation. And that means that I have to do more than vote. I have to blood, I have to bleed, I have to sweat, I have to cry, I have to suffer, I have to sacrifice. And even as I say it, like I got a knot in my stomach because am I prepared to do that personally? I don't know. I just know that I need to do that. And obeying it is a different story. But maybe if we all get together and begin to encourage one another, for example, from the pulpit, reminding Christians of the gospel politic, um, maybe we would begin to have more courage and more resources and more strategy to begin to take back the nation. So yeah, you can vote if you want, but don't think that voting is it. Like voting is not how you change the world. The gospel is how we change the world. Shaney, what do you think? I will not be voting. 
I'll be dissenting. Um, I do not believe that uh, because of the nature of the U.S. Constitution, how it does not regard the authority of God's law or as Christ. I think that is sinful for any person to swear an oath to uphold it. Uh, therefore, it would be sinful for Christians, obviously, to to uh, to partake in other people uh, taking that oath to uphold the blasphemous U.S. Constitution does not acknowledge Christ and his authority. Um, and I would basically agree with the uh, RPCNA's reasoning behind that. And uh, I actually have that pulled up right in front of me. It says that, you know, it has seven basic reasons. And it says that if any one of these statements is untrue, then all the conclusions which follow are reversed. One, Jesus Christ possesses all authority in heaven and in earth. Two, civil government ought to acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ. Three, the government of the U.S. does not acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ in the Constitution. Four, an oath to support and defend the Constitution implies the oath taker's acceptance of the unscriptural principles in the Constitution. Uh, therefore, it is sinful to take an oath to support and defend the U.S. Constitution of the United States. Uh, five, office holders are required to take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Therefore, it is sinful to hold office under the Constitution. Six, a voter is morally responsible for any act required of a candidate as a condition, uh, condition of holding office. Therefore, it is sinful to vote for candidates for public office under the U.S. Constitution. Um, and seven, the church must forbid its members to commit sinful acts. Therefore, the church must forbid its members to take an oath to support and defend the U.S. Constitution or hold office under the Constitution or to vote uh, for candidates for public office. And um, a lot of people will hear that and say, oh, so you don't believe in voting or participating in civil government? And they, of course, I, that's not true. I do believe in principle there's nothing wrong with voting or taking public office. Uh, just the conditions that exist in the U.S., because of the nature of the Constitution, I believe, make it sinful uh, to swear to uphold it or, by implication, partake in someone else swearing to uphold it. So are there such thing as uh, Reformed Baptist Covenanters? Just just wondering. I mean, in theory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that was basically the Covenanter perspective, right? That is, RPCNA is a Covenanter uh, denomination. Okay. Um, l let me ask you guys this. What is the supreme authority on law? Oh, that's a hard one. On the law? <laughs> what is the supreme authority on law? What is the supreme authority? God's word. Yeah, God's word. My feels. Right? <laughs> Not your feels, Shaney. No. Okay, let me let me read the supremacy clause of the, of the Constitution. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary notwithstanding. What does that say the supreme uh, authority on law is? The word of man. It says, it's, the Constitution says that itself and the, and the laws... Um, created by the United States government are the supreme law of the land. And so that's why it's blasphemous, because 
um, by by saying that it is the supreme authority, it's saying that Christ and His Word is not the supreme authority. So hopefully that makes that makes sense to you guys. That I agree with I agree with Shaney that it that um I'm I am a political dissenter. But that's a, I've only recently come to that conclusion. I actually voted in the last election. The other blasphemous, as we shall say, aspect of the Constitution is actually its First Amendment. A lot of people have a hard time understanding this, but What's the first com- What's the first commandment of the of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord thy God, brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. No other, right? Mm-hmm. So to have any other god before him would be, and the ultimate transgression, idolatry, right? And the first amendment of the Constitution says, "Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or pro- prohibiting the free exercise thereof," which is political, which is religious pluralism, which basically says that it doesn't matter what religion you have. What um, Congress cannot establish in a religion, a religion as the true religion, or prohibit the free exercise of any religion. So that's actually explicitly denying the first commandment of God's law. So I agree with the covenanter position on that. That uh, that it's uh, obviously it's blasphemous. And so if there were if there were a Christian in office already and they were to come to a realization of this fact, I would, you know, very strongly encourage them to remain in office and seek with all the authority that they have been given to change that. Um, now, the way that the Constitution is designed, it takes a lot of work and it's very difficult to change things. Um, so it's not likely to happen very quickly or very easily, but it is possible to change it. So if somebody were in office and came to a realization of these principles that the, that the constitution is blasphemous and then made it obvious that they were seeking with the authority that they had to try to, um, to try to change that, because obviously the constitution does provide, um, the, pro- the process of amendment where it can change things. So if somebody were to say, I'm going to try to change the supremacy clause to make, you know, the authority of Christ in his word, the supreme law of the land, rather than the authority of man, and then uh, change the, revoke the First Amendment and, and change it to uh, allow the government to establish a religion and allow the government to prohibit, prohibit the free exercise of pagan religions, then, like, that would, that would be a good thing. Um, but so I think what we need to do, rather than voting for the lesser of 12 million evils, because that's basically what we're doing, we're voting for people in political office. And, you know, honestly, somebody, somebody said this, and it just makes so much sense. Think about it this way. If you recognize the abject tyranny that we live under, and a lot of people don't, a lot of people think that the government we live under is fantastic, and it's better than a lot of other ones, granted, definitely. We have a lot more freedom to, you know, worship God here than we would in an Islamic country. But that doesn't make it perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But think about it this way. Recognizing the tyranny that we live under, the big government beast um, taking all the power to itself, right? If voting truly made a difference in the long run, if voting truly was a very powerful thing, do you think that they would give that to the people? Do you think that they would encourage people to vote? Do you think that they would encourage people to vote so vigorously if it actually made a difference? And in the reality, if we look at the two primary political parties, Democrat and Republican, we all recognize that they're both horrible. 
in the in the long run. They're all big government, which is just more tyranny, more tyranny, more spending, more stealing from people, no matter which way you look at it. What what are the chances that that's going to change? It's not. So really, your vote vote is wasted no matter who you vote for. And so voting for the lesser of two evils is still voting, like you said, voting for evil. Yeah, what do you guys think about that? I'm wondering... If someone is in office, why would you encourage them to continue to uphold and to stick to that vow that they made? I would not. The What I would be encourage them to do is to maintain the position of authority that they have, um, but use it for God's glory instead. But they would have to still, they'd have to renounce, they would have to like literally renounce the oath that they made, but then wouldn't they yeah. basically be removed from office right there? Um, I'm not sure exactly what would happen at that point in time. But what we should do is preach to the civil magistrates. And like you said, focusing on the local is primary. Because if you, as some Joe Schmo in, you know, backwoods Russia or wherever you live, Dustin, that was a joke. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can see Russia you, from my house. If you write a letter, if you write a letter <laughs> to President Obama, he's never going to see it, ever. Guarantee it. But if you write a letter to the mayor of your town, he might. And if you write a letter to the mayor of your town and say, you know, the pastor of my church would really like to get together the city council and preach to you guys if you guys would be willing to listen. If you had the opportunity to preach to them and, and, and tell them what they should do and what they shouldn't do biblically, you know, this is what the Bible says. If you guys want to honor Christ, here's how you do it. That's great. And that's what we, we look to the lesser magistrate, which we're going to talk about on another episode. Um, and say, like, look, you have to stand up for what's right, even if the people who are above you tell you otherwise. That's probably, that's the best way to get involved is to, is to communicate to local, ma- to, to, to the local civil magistrates, uh, what God's word requires of them. Now, I can just hear so many objections to everything that, uh, Colin and I have just said. Um, first of all, you know, the Bible, you know, the Bible is not, uh, a civil document, you know, we, we, um, or what, whatever this, Colin and I were actually just talking to a guy earlier today. I was basically arguing that the Bible does not apply to the U.S. government in any way, shape, or form, and that we just have to abide by, you know, the laws of the land. So, Colin, how would you respond to somebody that says that, you know, your presuppositions are way off, you know, the Bible's not, uh, a political document it doesn't apply in the way that you that you're saying yeah i think i think that it's hard for people to understand because most people have a dualistic concept in mind or this this radical two kingdoms idea that um that the bible has nothing to say about politics and if you recognize the simple fact that god's word is the ultimate authority for all life period if you recognize that fact you really have to think about what that what the implications of that are is God's word the ultimate authority on the political realm? If you say no, then God's word is not the ultimate authority on all areas of life. Right? Does God's word have anything to say? Like, we, I mean, we say stealing is wrong. Is it wrong for the government to steal? Yeah, it's wrong for the government to steal just as it's wrong for us to steal, right? Well, that's a political issue, right? That means that taxation in many forms, if not most forms, if not all forms, is very problematic, right? Because the government can't steal from people. Well, it's a political issue. And if you recognize that the, that the Bible has things to say about political issues, then you have to recognize 
that there's a problem with denying the authority of Christ in the civil realm. So, for example, um, you'll hear people like John MacArthur say things that seem contradictory, because on the one hand, he'll say, uh, politics have no bearing on the kingdom of God. And what he means by that is that it doesn't matter in the, in the long run. Like, politics is irrelevant. But then he'll stand up and he'll oppose the liberal political structure that says sodomite marriage is good or, you know, transgenderism should be normal. Or women can be the head of the household or preach from the pulpit. All these things that we hear from the liberal community, even from liberal so-called theologians, he would stand against those things and say, no, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman. Why? Because the Bible is the ultimate authority on all life, even in the political realm. So when the, when the political realm says sodomite marriage is good, we say, no, that's wrong, because God's word's the ultimate authority. If God's word's the ultimate authority on marriage, why is it not the ultimate authority on who has the ultimate authority? God's word affirms its own authority as ultimate, but the Constitution denies it, and it's a, it's a problem. Same thing when it comes to abortion. We say abortion is murder. By what standard? By the standard of Scripture. Well, but Scripture doesn't have anything to say about politics. You can, I mean, if, if you really hold fast to the Scripture as nothing to say about politics thing, then you can't have any complaint against abortion at all. So, And of course, people like John MacArthur would rapidly stand against abortion because they recognize the truth that God's Word is the standard. Just He's in, just inconsistent when it comes to, you know, how that pertains to politics. But, but what about religious liberty? Do you have that Rutherford quote? Because I don't have it, but it was amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I didn't, I don't know if it was really Rutherford. I never saw uh, a source, but I'll, I'll look it up real quick. Yeah, religious liberty is a lie. Because what is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's not religious liberty. But that was the Old Testament, Colin. Yeah, of course. If you deny the Ten Commandments, then of course that doesn't make any sense to you. But if it's true that you shall have no other gods before me and that that's binding on all people for all time, that's not religious liberty. That's not you're free to worship whatever god you want. That's you're free to worship one god, and if you don't worship that one god, you're a sinner and a criminal. So religious liberty is not biblical. You, you have you have the freedom to worship God the way that God tells you to worship him. You don't have the freedom to worship idols. I mean that's I mean it's obviously sin. So we don't look at we don't look at Muslims and Mormons and uh Romanists and say, well, oh, well they're just worshiping God differently. They're not worshiping God differently. They're not worshiping God. And uh the alleged the supposed quote from Rutherford that I have yet to uh fact check. Is he a source? But it is good. It says, uh, religious liberty is letting every man choose his own way to go to hell. And so if we really love our neighbor, are we going to permit them religious liberty and say, oh, well, you can worship God however you want. You know, it's okay. No. Like, with our, if, if we have a neighbor who's a Muslim, and we don't say or do anything to communicate to him that he's an idolater, then he's going to hell, and you did nothing about it. If you really love your neighbor, you're going to tell him you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping an idol of your own imagination, and you need to repent. What are you? What are your other objections, Shaney? <laughs> well, let's just. Let's, let, I, I still have some questions about the religious liberties. Dealing with uh, living living in a society that we do, uh, understanding what we do about God's law and gospel. Is there is there a way through through civil legislation to uh, prohibit uh, a Muslim 
ultimately from not committing adult, uh, idolatry. In in the sense of uh, public, like the civil crime of idolatry, yes. But when it comes to the heart issue, no, you can't make somebody love God. Um, and that's not what the civil law is supposed to do. Obviously, the civil law guides us to understand, you know, what our heart condition should look like. But you can't, you can't prevent sinners from sinning. And I agree with that. And what what you can do is prevent idolatry from being a public issue. So if you are a Muslim living in a Christian nation where Christianity is the religion, and you're not permitted to build a mosque or you know, throw out your prayer mat on the street and, and look to Mecca to pray. You know, like if that's forbidden by by law because Christianity is an established religion, then he would have to do that in the privacy of, privacy of his own home, right? He would have to do that on his own secretly, preventing it from being a public issue, which means that people are not seduced to idolatry, which is a good thing. We don't want people to, you know consider all of the different gods and decide which one they want for themselves, right? Joshua said to the people, he said, you know, choose for, you know, looks at all the idols and says, you know, choose for yourself who we, whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He wasn't actually, he was joking. Like, he was being sarcastic when he said that. He wasn't like, oh, well, yeah, you look at all of these other idols and decide which one you want to worship. He was saying, if you choose to worship not God, you're going to die because he'll kill you, all of you. But, I'm going to serve God because that's the best thing for me and for my people. Well, Colin, is, is what you're saying, is this, is this reformed thinking or is this, you know, radical, uh, new, un, you know, ahistoric, is this a new idea or is this, or is this in line with the historic reformed faith? I'll just go back to Calvin because that's who we go back to for the reformed faith. Calvin was not a civil magistrate. But he was an advisor to the civil magistrate. And the civil magistrate to whom he was an advisor was not a Christian. But he advised the civil magistrate telling him, this is what the word of God says and this is what you should do. And the civil magistrate listened. So for all intents and purposes, Geneva was a, you know, an established church. So if you were a dissenter from the established church in Geneva, you, weren't, you were run out of town. You weren't allowed to stay there. But if you wanted to stay there, all you had to do was, you know, keep your own idolatries to yourself. If you keep it in your heart, nobody can, convi can convict you of a crime if it's just in your heart, right? It's only a problem if you're going out on the streets and preaching idolatry. Then it's a problem. And Calvin didn't just get that idea from nowhere. It goes back to Constantine. People under the Roman, the Christians under the Roman Empire had literally no means of political process to change the system to honor God. They just had to pray and preach to the magistrates just like, like uh, John the Baptist did to Herod and say, look, what you're doing is unlawful. You can't have your brother's wife. That's not, un that's not lawful. You can't do that. You need to repent, right? He preached to the civil magistrate and told him what God's law said and that he needed to change the way he lived his life. And he got beheaded for it. Well, Christians did the same thing for centuries, for the first couple centuries after Christ. And eventually, through zero political process, because there was none, and through a whole lot of prayer, Constantine was converted and he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And a lot of people look at that and say, oh, that was bad. But it wasn't bad because by making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, that gave Christians the freedom to worship God the way that he commands rather than to be persecuted like they were before that. We would call that a good thing. That also meant 
that the civil magistrates were bound to God's law because it was an official religion. It was a good thing. So Calvin wasn't just like making this up. There was historical precedent. Um, and then the generation of reformers after Calvin, and by the way, even Luther uh, agreed that the civil magistrate should obey the law of God. So there are some people today who would say that Luther definitely did not think that, but that's actually not true. He would have advocated the death penalty for adultery and idolatry and such. The generation after the reformers who formulated the West, um, the the Heidelberg Catechism very early, uh, he Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort were the early, um, so the three forms of unity. And then a century or so after was the Westminster Standards, Westminster Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechism, the Solemn League and Covenant, the Directory of Public Worship, and all the other subordinate standards set in stone um, what the church decided ultimately was what the Word of God taught and what we should abide by. Those confessions, I mean, the, the three forms of unity and the Westminster Standards, both very adamantly affirm the establishment principle, which is that Christianity should, if, if a nation covenants itself to God, it should be the religion and there, you know, you shouldn't permit idolatry. So this is the, the original, the 1646 Westminster Confession and the Belgic Confession of 1561, which is the original, uh, said in, I think it's Article 36 of the Belgic Confession and Chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession says that it's the civil magistrate's duty to um, protect the ministry of God, to oppose idolatry, and uh, and and such things like that, as well. And then the establishment principle as well was is the concept that the you know there should be one church. Yeah, no, it is a it is the Reformed position, and it wasn't actually until the rev the American revision of the Westminster Confession that anybody actually dissented from that position. And those churches which did dissent from it, primarily the Presbyterian Church of the United States in America, PCUSA, we all now know as the most liberal denomination. So you can see where that leads, ultimately. Um, and when they were... I've heard people say that they they, did, they revised the Westminster Standards because they disagreed with them. But in reality, they revised the standards because they wanted to exist as a church under the United States government. And the United States government has the First Amendment and the Supremacy Clause. So they had to deny uh, what the Confession said about the, the authority of, of Scripture in those areas in order to actually subscribe to the standards and be under the United States Constitution at the same time. So, And uh, one of the proof texts in Chapter 31 of... The Westminster Confession is uh, is thirty one. The establishment principle. Yeah, is Isaiah forty nine twenty three that kings shall be thy nursing fathers, um, and the Westminster divines interpret that as being the king, uh, the civil magistrates would protect and nourish uh, the church. Yeah, which is a completely radical, different view from what most professing Reformed theologians would, would have to say about that today. Yeah, and I think I think the biggest uh, the biggest thing in thirty one is that it actually chapter thirty one of the Westminster Standard Westminster Confession uh, gives the civil magistrate the authority to call synods and councils together. So, for example, if we had the Westminster Standards as the authority on what was the true religion, and then some controversy comes up that's not clear for some reason, if there's something that's not clear, then the civil magistrates doesn't know how to do his job. And so because of that, he would be have the ability to call together the church and say, okay, look, 
I don't know how to do my job. You guys need to decide because I don't have the authority to decide what scripture says. I'm not the church. You guys decide as the church what is correct and what is not. They'd call together a council. The council would decide. The se- that would be like added as compendium standards, subservient to the Westminster standards, which would then allow the civil magistrate to know what to do. I can't wait for my great, 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 great grandkids to be able to live in a society like that. <laughs> and it may take that long, but it may not. It may take a generation for the way that the United States government is going to completely collapse on itself. Yeah. And if it collapses, that would give Christians the opportunity to, you know, start from scratch with a biblical foundation. And that's really what we want is a biblical foundation. Unless the rapture comes. Don't talk to me. The velocirapture. <laughs> the velocirapture. John, what are your thoughts on, on dissenting? Um, I mean, I, I get, I, I get, I get the dissenting. Um, I, I, that's a lot for me to chew on. I can't argue with it. Um, I, right. I, uh, a lot of it I've been, I've been seeing anyway, you know, as, um, you know, as a theonomist, I don't think, I don't think it's a secret that, that I'm a theonomist. So sorry, mom. <laughs> but yeah. So I, I, I still have a lot to learn about God's law and, and of course the, 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 the history of the church. Like, um, like, oh, I, I've always found it, I, not always, but since, since the past couple of years, I'm really fascinated with, with the, the historical situation and context in which the, like, the three forms of unity and the confessions and, and the councils, like, came about. It's, a lot of the time seems to come out of this idea of, like, well, how do we as a church, like, how do we like disciple our people, and how do we conduct ourselves in society uh, in the midst of tyranny, in the midst of sin, in the midst of the broken world? How can we? And it's always been not retreating, but how can we be active? How can we uh, influence society? So yeah, what what, what Shane and, and Colin are, are bringing to the table here, are, are, are some of it I haven't heard before, some of it I have, and um, I just I just need to chew on it, but I definitely, I can't argue with it right now, and I, I can't say that there's anything that they've said where I'm like, there's like seeing red or anything like that, so I just, uh, it just reminds me that I have a lot to learn. We can probably talk about this more later once you guys think about it and stuff, but I think one of the biggest objections that I've heard is just that it seems like if we don't vote, uh, it, it just seems like we're not doing anything about it. That's seems like we're not doing anything about the problems, right? Right. But what is that? Capitulation to sin in order to get things done? That's pragmatism. Right, exactly. And it's and, pragmatism and it, is not pragmatism is not right. I think it's like just because it seems like Yeah. Yep. Just because it seems like we can do something about it, we should try even if it's sinful. No, we should not sin in order to try to better society, right? We should preach the gospel, like you guys it's, said. It's the, the whole. I, I, well, well, I got saved by a woman pastor. So how can you say it's wrong? Well, just because it, just because some, just because it may work, doesn't mean we should do it. Yeah, God, God can use a bent stick. He can. God can strike a straight blow with a bent stick. Does that mean that we ought to use a bent stick? Right. Cool. We will be we will be right back in a few in a few seconds with uh, with more from that post now. Everything. Everywhere. 
Welcome back to that post mill podcast. It's a it's a hefty one, guys. I hope you guys uh, hope you guys got your thinking caps on, and I hope you guys are, uh, are are focused and in the scriptures. Remember, when you hear something that's new, or you hear something that might be uh, jostling, I just want to encourage you, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong what you've heard, but I do want to encourage you, maybe remind you that that's usually how the Word of God hits our heart. That's usually what happens when we are confronted with God's law and gospel, um, when when our ways come into uh, engage God's ways. It's not comfortable. And we're, we as a people are not called to be safe. We're not called to be comfortable. We're not called to seek security in church buildings or in the state. God is our refuge. He is our fortress, right? He is the one we trust in, not horses and chariots or computers and taxes. So I just want to encourage you all to, to take the example from Acts when Paul went to Berea and he had a very different uh, a very different situation there and experience than he did earlier when he was in Thessalonica. And you see that the Bereans, though they didn't all agree with him, they did take what he said and they took it to the standard. They took it to the scriptures. Some believed, some didn't, but they went to the scriptures and they they uh, acknowledged that standard. So I encourage us all to be Bereans, to go to the scriptures, look at your church history, look at look, look at your nation history. I mean, we if you love America and you love uh, and you love the church, learn about it, um, really get into it. And, and uh, I'm right there with you. You guys can email me, and we can maybe go on this journey together. You can email us because I am new to it as well. Uh, in terms of a lot of this history and everything, so um, there's a lot out there. So anyway, uh, there is an article uh, that is, uh, believe it or not, kind of related. It's a short little article. I don't know, even know if you could consider it an article. It's um, it's in the, like the answers part of ninemarks.org. Now, before we get into this, I do want to let I do want to personally, and I don't know if I can speak for the rest of my my post here, but uh, I have a great appreciation and a great respect for Nine Marks Ministry. Uh, Pastor Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, has, uh, I think that I, I really respect his ministry. I believe that he preaches God's Word faithfully, and every time I've heard him, every time uh, I've talked to him, uh, he has been uh, nothing but uh, encouraging and orthodox and, um, and godly. So, but that doesn't mean we disagree with everything that, that, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything that Nine, Nine Marks puts out. So there is uh, this thing on ninemarks.org, and it's called, and the question that it answers is a question that we've talked about here on that post Does the gospel include the transformation of society? Um, before, I mean, I, I mean, I could take a, I could take a poll right now to make sure we're still on the same page, Dustin. Uh, yes or no on that? Oh, I would say hearty yes. A hearty yes, all right. Uh, and and I I am uh, yes as well, but. Nine marks here. This article, um, this, this in this short little piece, uh, you guys can go to it again. I recommend ninemarks.org. We actually have nine marks of a healthy church as a book on our resources uh, on thatpostman.com. Check it out. Uh, I also want to mention that Mark Dever did not write this. This is uh, someone that's in his organization, but nonetheless, it's 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 that ministry. But the uh, the article begins with a short statement of the gospel. And that is, the gospel is the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners by living in their place. He died in their place, all to bear God's wrath against their sins, rising or raising from the grave in order to give his people eternal life and 
usher in a new creation. Now, this is, I don't see anything untrue about any of these propositions uh, that were placed here. Uh, I do see some things untrue later on. But I think it's important to, that we point out, uh, we would refer you maybe to uh, Joe McDermott's video that we have. I think we have it. Dustin, we have that on our resources, I think, right? Um, you know, don't limit the I'll gospel. put it in the description of this episode. That's a great video. I'd also recommend that, uh, the, a new video that Apologia Radio, Jeff Durbin, uh, just put out on just answering this question, what is the gospel? We also have a mini-sode, number one. With that, the name of it is just that question, what is the gospel? And I only bring that up because the gospel, um, if I can quote Bo, Bo Shadar Marinoff, says that the gospel, the Bible is big because the gospel is big. So when we talk about sinners and, and saving sinners, it's true. The only, like, yes, Jesus lived and died in our stead. He's our scapegoat. He's our once-for-all sacrifice. Uh, God's wrath was placed upon him so that and, and we receive his righteousness. These are all very true things, very, very true. But when you're talking about transformation of society, and you define the gospel only in terms of an individual sinner's soteriology, how their plight and their forgiveness and their afterlife, you're beginning already on the wrong foot. Because the gospel is not only the salvation of sinners. The gospel is the justice of God returning to the world. It's restoring of his creation. The gospel is technically the royal announcement of God himself concerning his son, that the kingdom of God has come in his son, that his son now has defeated death and resurrection, and in that power, it now rules and reigns the nations. The nations are his inheritance, Psalm 2. So the gospel is more than just about us. Actually, Romans 1 says that the gospel is God's announcement concerning his son. And so I'm not going to, I don't disagree with any of the propositions here. I don't think any of this would. It's, it's all true, and it's all really good news for me to hear that as a sinner, I have these things because of what Christ has done. If you limit the gospel that way, then you're logically going to come to a place like this person, like uh, at nine marks here, comes to, that that means that the gospel has nothing to do with anything else but your sin and your plight and your afterlife, even though Paul says in Ephesians that we are saved for the purpose of good works, which we know in the context of the new exodus and Ephesians is discussing the missio day, God's ultimate kingdom agenda. Anyway, before I read this paragraph, do you guys have any thoughts or anything to add, or maybe maybe I'm wrong? You can slap me wrong. Yeah, I do. Um, so I hesitated to say yes before because I was thinking of you know how how can I prove it from scripture? And I would say, and now I would say, I thought about it a little bit. I was I would say an emphatic yes. The gospel does mean the transformation of society because when you look at you start reading the gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. You see, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and there's no explanation given on what that means. So that so this is something that we're supposed to know. It's something that is informed by the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament. So if you go back to the book of Daniel, you know you see, you know the kingdom of Christ is presented as a stone cut without hands that becomes great mountains and and, and fills the whole earth. Uh, as, as it it smites. Um, the rest of the earthly kingdoms. And then, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, him coming in his kingdom and then his kingdom growing uh, to be greater than all the other garden plants and like a, a measure of leaven that permeates, you know, the whole lump 
So definitely, the gospel does transform the world. It, it, it destroys the kingdoms uh, of the world, as we see in Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7. And, you know, it permeates the whole world, like leaven permeates a whole lump of dough. So definitely, yes, I do believe that the gospel will include the transformation of society, seeing that it is the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of this king that is prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures that's going to come and dominate the world, that, that the nations are going to flow up to hear his law and wait for his law and learn from him. And all, all these, Isaiah 2 and all these, all these uh, various prophecies that we can get into later. Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 7 as well. The, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Or Psalm uh, 72, verse 7. The abundance of peace uh, shall continue until the moon be no more. And I, I think, I think the, the difficulty that people have is it seems like by saying the gospel includes the transformation of culture, it seems like we're adding something to what's necessary for salvation. But all that we're really doing is saying that salvation is not just justification. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No questions asked. But justification is not by itself salvation. Salvation is also sanctification and glorification. Christ purchased for us with his blood and by his active obedience righteousness that, he imp that is imputed to us in this life the good works that we do, that God has prepared in advance that we will do them, those are the active, that, that's the imputation of the active obedience of Christ. Even the good works that we do now are not of us, but of God. It's the, it's the work of God that we do. He works in us both the will and the working of his good pleasure. And that, that's not discluded from the gospel. That's part of the gospel as well. Because that's still something that's purchased for Christ, purchased by Christ for us on the cross, and gl even glorification, what we experience in the uh, the eternal redemption of our bodies and the consummate state of creation, that's still part of soteriology. And uh, you mentioned Isaiah nine. I just want to make a comment on that. I usually see people when they quote that, they quote verses six and seven, but I think they should also they should also include verse five. Um, because it says, for every boot of the booted warrior in battle tum uh, tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning uh, fuel for the fire. That's how it starts off. So th so I think this is saying the basic... So boots for battle and cloaks for right, war. Well, right, they won't be needed anymore. It's the same thing that Isaiah 2 um, says in, in Isaiah 11, that because, that, that because of the coming of this Messiah, this son that's given to us, that there's going to be an effect, um, that there's actually going to be peace on the earth, that, that war will not, will no longer be something that's practiced on a, on a regular basis eventually. Yeah, Isaiah 2 4 says, uh, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, neither shall they learn war ever again. Evermore. And one more, Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Um, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he, he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will, he will faithfully bring forth justice. 
He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Well, just to jump on the bandwagon, uh, I know a lot of people talk about, oh, that's the Old Testament, but you got to understand, I mean, there's a lot of problems when people say that, but if we look at how Paul, Paul's gospel of God in Romans, is that his gospel would be uh, for the obedience of the faith of the nation. Uh, this is what Paul is telling a Roman church who's used to hearing Rome's propaganda and the Roman power and the emperor, lord of lords, and, and all that. So, um, yeah, in Isaiah and Psalm 110, being the most quoted and referenced Old Testament text by the New Testament writers, I think says a huge, that's a huge message uh, for us as well. And actually, you know, the, where it says, you know, the obedience of faith, in all nations, so that in the beginning of Romans one, also says in Romans sixteen, and that's that seems like a direct reference to you know Genesis forty nine ten, where it says that you know Shiloh comes to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Yep. Shane, I wish I, I wish I had you like to counsel me before I preach Sunday, bro. Could have could have added something. <laughs> all right. So, I, so yeah, we here uh, on that post mill. Uh, really do believe that the transformation of society is, is a big part of what, the, what, what God wants to do uh, through the spiritual people uh, because of what his son who reigns uh, over the nations has done. You know, the nations, again, Psalm 2, the nations are given to him as an inheritance. Um, so I just want to read this paragraph here um, discussing, and it's, seriously, there's only like five paragraphs. I, I mean, I could just read this short thing. So I'll just start again. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners by living in their place, dying in their place to bear God's wrath against their sins, and rising from the grave in order to give his people eternal life and usher in a new creation. That's something right there. What, do you, what does that mean, usher in a new creation? All right, back to the... Uh, some people latch on to that idea of new creation. Oh, he's going to get into it. Or the fact that Jesus preached good news to the poor in Luke 7.22 and claim that the gospel includes the transformation of society. They say that the church has taken Jesus' radical, inherently political message and domesticated it into a nice little religious message about going to heaven when you die. So who's right? That depends on what the word gospel actually means. I agree with them. Let's see what he says. The Bible sometimes uses the word gospel to refer to the fulfillment of all God's promises and the establishment of God's kingdom rule through Jesus. He references Mark 1, uh, Mark 1, 14 and 15, and Acts 13, 32. The New Testament says that one day this kingdom will consist in a perfect world in which those who have believed in Christ live in perfect fellowship with God forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 22, and uh, Revelation 5, or 22, or 21, 1 through 22, 5. The New Testament also says that this world will only come about through the sovereign, decisive work of God, the coming of Christ, not a moment before, and certainly not through our efforts. In other words, even this broad use of the word gospel, quote-unquote, doesn't include the transformation of society here and now. I just want to note, no scripture reference after that. However, in the vast majority of the New Testament's use of the word gospel, the word means the message about the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Romans 1, 16-17 and 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. This gospel 
It is the good news that Jesus, by a saving work, now offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all those who turn from their sin and trust in him. The gospel, this gospel, will transform the way people live here and now, which may have a tangible impact on the broader culture. But to say that the gospel includes the transformation of society is to go beyond scripture and confuse distant implications of the gospel with the gospel, a move that has historically caused Christians to lose their grasp on the message itself. And I just want to, that's how he closes, and again, no scripture references to that. Well, my entire eschatological pyre has just been shaken. I am no longer post-mill. I'm on-mill. Goodbye. <laughs> Moses. Moses, how dare you? Actually, that sounded yeah, it's, pre-mill. It's, it sounded pretty, like, defeating. Um, but when you say when you say all of these truths of scripture about transformation of culture don't come about until Jesus returns, it sounds pre-mill. Because Amils don't believe that Amils don't believe that come that Christ comes to transform culture. Amils believe he comes to destroy sinners and resurrect the saints to inherit the earth. So that's not a transformation of culture. It's just the, I mean that's the consummation. Whereas the premills think that he actually comes back to kill everybody and then force them to comply by the sword, which seems sort of like what people object to when they hear about theonomy. <laughs> theonomy, not until oh, the, the irony, not until the second coming, not not until Israel reveals the temple. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. They say they say we can't we can't impose God's law by the sword, which of course we don't want to do. But Jesus, what, can. what do you guys think about his, his uh, suggestion that there's two different definitions of the gospel? in the New Testament, because, I, you know, that's something that struck me. I've always understood it as, you know, there's one definition of the gospel, that the gospel of the kingdom includes personal salvation, and, you know, you know, Jesus is not Jesus and Paul do not preach a different gospel when it says they preach the, God, the good news about the kingdom of God. They're preaching the same gospel, um, but it's, it's inclusive of, of personal salvation, but it's also inclusive about the implications of the kingdom of God uh, which Jesus himself, you know, describes as being, you know, the largest of all garden plants and, you know, permeating. I think, I think what he's on to by saying that there are two different definitions of the gospel is the dualism that exists within the system that he subscribes to, which, of course, John, you pointed out, he doesn't use any scripture reference to, to clarify. When, when Jesus is talking about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is united in the salvation of a people for himself. But that itself has implications. So, so I think when he when he near the end there, when he said people confuse the implications of the gospel, the distant implications of the gospel with the gospel itself, I think the problem is that he's forgetting that there are implications now as well. Like if he's going to say if if he's on mill and saying that you know that's the consummation of history, that is the redemption of our bodies, our glorification, that is truly part of the gospel. But between justification and glorification is sanctification. And it's not just the sanctification of me and you, but the sanctification of the church in history. And ultimately, the sanctification of the world. And uh, when I was on mill, I remember reading texts like Psalm 22, verses 27 to 31. And just just assuming that I had to be talking about the consummation because, you know, there's no way it's talking about before because, you know, we're always going to be persecuted. We're always going to be, you know, defeated. We're always going to, um, 
be antagonized by the world. That there can't be a time when something like this is 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 fulfilled, where all the ends of the earth, you know, turn and remember the Lord, and all the cringes of the nations worship before Him. That can't happen before the second coming of Christ. It has to be. So I read all these texts in the Old Testament: Isaiah two, Isaiah eleven, Isaiah sixty, Isaiah fifty four, etc., etc., etc. And I would just put them off to the consummation, and it seems like what he's doing. And eventually, I had to ask myself, why do I keep doing this? Why am I putting everything else to the consummation? Do I is there actually an exegetical warrant for putting all these prophecies off to the consummation, other than my my pessimistic presuppositions? And I think more than that too, when you were talking about Psalm twenty two verses, I think twenty two uh, to twenty seven to thirty one, twenty seven to thirty one, where it says all all the ends of the earth will turn. That word turns the same word used to re- for repentance. All millennials don't believe that happens at the consummation. They don't believe people turn and repent at the consummation. They believe God kills everybody that didn't already repent. So you have to believe that it applies to something in wow. history. So the question is, do you believe it actually means all peoples will turn? Or do you believe it means a few people from every nation will turn? So do you believe... And and I'm going to... I mean, shots fired here, but are you going to believe what the text says... Or are you going to impose upon the text your pessimistic Another thing I'd like to point out with this with this article is that he clearly misuses scripture. I mean, um, he he uses he, he references Mark one fourteen and fifteen to uh, he says the Bible sometimes uses the word gospel to refer to the fulfillment of all of God's promises and the establishment of God's kingdom rule through Jesus. And then he said he quotes Mark one fourteen through fifteen. And I'm not, I'm not denying that the gospel, like, I would say that that's what the gospel, that's what the gospel is. Um, but not just one, but. But he just doesn't believe it's happening now. Basically, and, 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 well, look at Mark. Mark 1, 14 and 15 is, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, so. He uses that as if it's only one way that the gospel is used. Now, notice he goes on and doesn't really uh, the next how, the next paragraph. However, the vast majority of the New Testament's use of the word gospel, the word means the message about the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in Him. Now, he references Romans one sixteen, which we all know what that is. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. For the Jew first, also the group, for in it, the righteousness, or faithfulness, depending on, on translation, for in it, uh, the righteousness of God, the Sune, is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, he's referencing... The just shall wait, wait, what? The just shall what? The just shall have to wait, he said. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> I thought for a second there, I thought you said the just shall live by faith. I was going to say, no, 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 no. No, you haven't overrealized eschatology. Over-realized. The just will not live by faith until the consummation, John. Right. What are you thinking of? And what's funny is, and he says that Romans one sixteen, he uses it to back up his point that the gospel is used about the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm not again. There's nothing untrue about the proposition that the gospel includes, and is really hugely based on the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. But Romans one sixteen and seventeen is discussing. Like, the power and the justice of God have returned to the world in the Son, and that is the gospel announcement. So when we preach the gospel, 
when we demonstrate the gospel, that's really where the power of God and where the justice of God is being revealed in this broken world. So it's not, and this can go back to our first segment, it's not voting that's going to change things. It's not having better committees at your church, even though, yeah, practically you need to. It's not a singles ministry. It's not this. It begins with the preaching of the gospel of God, and that is the Bible. That's the whole council, not just a few propositions. So this author, his, his, he uses Romans 1, 16 and 17, but it, it actually just shoots himself in the foot. I don't think it means what you think it means. Does he, does he have Jesus preaching a different gospel than Paul in the epistles? He makes it, he, I mean, he seems to make a dichotomy where he shouldn't make one. Yeah, I think, I think it's the most instructive thing to consider what's the primary verse that we go to contra you know, Roman Catholic idolatry, when, when they say salvation is not by faith alone, it's by faith plus our works, right? Where do we go to? We go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. What's the next verse? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, for good, good works. works. I mean, the thought, you can't really even understand his thought if you don't include that. You can't, you can't not finish the sentence. And we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That, that we may walk, I mean, he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? And it's not, some people think, well, God has a lot of opportunities for you to good, do good works, but it's really up to you what good works you do. No. I mean, yes, it's our responsibility to honor God. But when we do honor God, we can never boast and say, ah, see, I honored God and you didn't. Because even the good works that we do are God's God working in us. And that God working in us is part of the gospel, right? I mean, he doesn't work in us just because he's just like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to take this random sinner and I think I'm going to make him honor me. No, he does that because of the blood of Christ. He can justly change the heart of the sinner to love him and obey him because of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. That is part of the gospel. Yep. Uh, and I mean, and some people think, some people think like, okay, just because I'm doing a few good things doesn't really change culture. Okay, well, it doesn't stop with me, right? I share the gospel with my neighbors. God changes their hearts. They start living differently. They share with their neighbors. They, God changes their hearts. They start living differently. What happens when, you know, the vast majority of a society turns to Christ and starts living differently? The change of culture. That's that's a gospel movement. That's awakening. That's revival. And that's what we want to see. And that that's the only hope for America. Um, it really is. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's, the church in America will never be left. And I think we need, there's a lot of naysayers out there, and it really, it really, it really grinds my gears because Christ died for His bride. He loves her. We just already referenced the promise that we that, that He will He will not fail to deliver her, perfect, beautiful, spotless, um, to to the Father. Now, what I mean is it, what I mean when I say that the church is 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 the church is going to be sanctified always. And the church will be sanctified through the judgment of the nation that they're in, through which will be very hard. It'll be very hard for the church, but you know what? It'll be good for the church. 
or the, the, the church can be sanctified through, through a, a great awakening and a revival of society. You know, either way, those are good. Of course, I hope for the, the awakening and the revival, but as Christians, we need to understand that the way things are right now can't stand. And when we see articles like this online, that, and I'm not, again, I'm not picking on my marks. It's a great ministry. Please go there. Uh, support them. There's a lot to learn. But this is the majority view in America. And if we take enough leaders and enough churches and enough of the church culture in America that believe this, it's no wonder that logically we are where we are, where we're, we're at this place where it's going to be judgment or it's going to be awakening. Um, you know, it's going to, it's going to be Nineveh the first time around. I, I think, I think Shaney pointed out that Nineveh actually was destroyed eventually, but it's going to be, eventually. it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be the, the, the Jonah's experience with Nineveh or it's going to be a Sodom thing. Like this is, I don't see societies in history and scripture going any other way. Certainly not uh, allowed to, to remain. So the, the last, the last paragraph of this, of this thing, of this little article, says this gospel will transform the way people live here and now. Seems to agree with Colin right there, which may have a tangible impact on the broader culture, but to say that the gospel includes the transformation of society is to go beyond scripture and confuse, and this is actually well written, it's kind of poetic, confuse distance implications of the gospel with the gospel. A move that has historically caused Christians to lose their grasp on the message itself. And I would say, sir, with all due respect, sir, your message right now of a dichotomy and a dualism in the gospel is why we are we have lost our grasp on the message today. It is your, ironically, your answer is the problem that you expose here in the closing of your article. And I would, uh, I, I don't know if, if anyone can, can get to nine marks or whatever, I mean, it, it, it just really needs to, to be said to our leaders. With all due respect, we're not here to, to cage stage. We're not here to, like, cause, we don't want division. We know that God hates that. It's an abomination to cause unnecessary division. But the, we need to get this, this out to Christians that you, there is a gospel that is big and victorious. We have a king that reigns over the nations. And no one, no government, no army can stop them. And that's the gospel. Yeah. And here's... Here's the biggest problem with it. When you tell Christians, when you tell them, yeah, go preach the gospel, but don't ever hope to actually see anything come from it. Which is really what they're saying. Like, yeah, you may see a few souls come to salvation, but don't expect massive transformation to come following that. What you're basically tell them, telling them is to expect failure. And when people expect failure, they're not, they're not encouraged to actually go forth. But when you actually like look and say, like, okay, no, if I preach the gospel and God changed people's hearts, they will live differently, you hope for success and you see success in the future. On that note, I just wanted I just wanted to read a scripture. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, uh, but on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.
No, Shaney, stop it. You're you're trying to reach for long term implications and bring them into the now. Like, stop. Quit quit reading whatever that book is you're reading. It's it's stop it. I don't like it. What what weird, crazy, charismatic, dominionist wrote that nonsense? Now, if we understand uh, Jesus's references there, you know, he, uh, a lot of people think, um, Dustin, do we have a do we have that sermon up on Matthew five? I don't know if we put it up or, or not, but by who? Uh, uh, by me. But I, if we if we look at Jesus's the one you did on the law, yes. Yeah, that's it's got it's a post on the on debtpostable dot com. All right, well, so so guys, go go check that out because what we, one thing I one thing I get into that I found that really encouraged me in, in my in my preparation by looking at that passage by Christ is if we look at what is the light of the Lord in Scripture, we see in Isaiah two, for example, I think two five, I believe it's two five, where God encourages Jacob to walk in the light of the Lord, and we see here in Proverbs six. Uh, 623 for the commandment is a lamp. The law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So we see this idea in, um, in not just in, in scripture, but also in rabbinic tradition, rabbinic literature and discussions, that this idea of the light of the Lord is always God's law. It's always his word. There, there's no m- weird other kind of thing that it possibly could be. So when Jesus is saying that you are the light of the world, a city set on the hill, Isaiah 2, cannot be hidden, like all these references are coming out, what is he saying about the church? What is he saying about the spirit-filled people of God in the world right now? It's huge. It's not just, a lot of people take Jesus' words there and they relegate them to just being a good neighbor, though it's important to be a good neighbor, and help people be smiling and be a light for people. And that's good. But if we see what the light of the Lord does throughout the, 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 the scriptures, the whole council from Genesis, when he said, let there be light, for example, the first thing he creates with the word of his mouth, and we move all the way through to here where Jesus is doing his Sermon on the Mount, you see that light is also exposing sin, judging sin, and is, bring, and is bringing God's law, God's justice, it's transforming the world, it's restoring the world. That's God's God's law versus man's law. And remember what else the New Testament says, too. Remember what else the New Testament says. It says, the darkness is passing away. No, no, Colin, you haven't over-realized it as eschatology. You're... <laughs> <laughs> we should play a drinking game. Every, every time we say that, we have to take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> if the darkness is passing away, and it continues to pass away, conti- I mean, if that's a progression through history, a continual thing, all the way into the consummation, then that means logically, that the light has to increase. Think about the implications of that in light of how we define, how, how Scripture defines the light. That means that there will be more obedience to God's law and less breaking of it. More people saved and less people not. Sorry, go ahead. You were saying something, but I interrupted you. No, no, that's good. I mean, I, I, I just think, um, I, tell, I tell my people a lot, and I think I've said it here before, like, it's just really cool, like, when you, there's certain uh, motifs and pictures in scripture that if you just read the scriptures and just really focus on maybe following this motif, um, and there's a, and there's a lot of them that you can do. And light, oh, there's such a treasure of knowledge and wisdom uh, that you you as a Christian with the Spirit of God will be changed 
uh, after studying the scripture, just following the light of scripture. From creation down through to the new creation in, in, in Christ, um, the law being eternalized as it's promised to happen in the new covenant written on our hearts. It's just, uh, I would just, you know, wet your whistles, listeners, and just really encourage you to, to dig into the scriptures and just seek the light that is God's word. And the perfect light of God, the perfect revelation of God is in Christ. Um, and all those things that come together. And then he says that we are the light of the world. It's, it's exciting. That, you know, you were just reminding me of Isaiah chapter 8 where it says, um, you know, it's the law and the testimony. If they do not, you know, speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8.20. Yeah, I mean, you could take just one, seriously, you could take one text of scripture, like Isaiah, and just do that, follow the light. Imagine if, just for a moment, just imagine if every single true Christian in the entire nation spoke with one voice, preaching righteousness to our civil magistrates constantly. It would produce one of two things, and possibly both in the long run it would either force the civil magistrates to turn more adamantly against God, cause the deterioration of the culture of the United States to occur more quickly and judgment from God to come more swiftly, or it would cause them to repent and turn and begin to honor Christ. And the problem is that we have people well, that, that say things like this Nine Marks article where they say, you know, stop trying stop trying to look for cultural transformation well if if christians actually take heed that advice and stop preaching righteousness to into the political into the civil realm because we we don't expect to see any change there if we stop there won't be when when god's people don't speak a prophetic voice against the wickedness in society that stifles change it, that that's actually the cause for the failure that we see. We look around us in society, we look around us particularly in America, we see the rapid deterioration of our culture. When did that start? The rapid deterioration of our culture started when Christians stopped preaching righteousness. I'm just reminded, when you say that, I'm just reminded of Hebrews, where he just talks about what, what the Christian maturity when you preach a gospel like what we see as popular in our nation, that the gospel is primarily you get forgiveness and get to go to heaven. Discipleship becomes almost impossible, and true Christian maturity becomes very, very difficult because now sanctification is just about your internal sins and making sure you have right relationships, which those are very, very important, but there's just no way to grow beyond that unless you know what the good works that you've been prepared for beforehand for are. And those good works aren't just helping old ladies cross the street, though. If you see an old lady, please help her. Those good works that you've been prepared beforehand for is the mission of God to subdue the nations, to defeat evil and death, and to see his kingdom complete and consummated. And we are in that work now. Um, and that, when a Christian grasps that and understands all the work that has to happen, Maturity comes pretty quick, I think, because you have the spirit, you have the scriptures, you have the elders and discipleship, hopefully. If not, please find that, by the way, that post note. We are big advocates of being involved 
heavily membered, accountable at a local church. Um, but if all these elements are going on and you realize the work that the kingdom has called us to, life changes. I mean, it's no longer it's no longer just about waiting for heaven. Now it's about bringing heaven here. Amen. Amen. Preach it. Preach that. And I'll put a link to this to that uh, nine marks. Um, article in the description so everybody go check out the article there's a comment section um so maybe once this article goes up i'll post this article in there and ask them to listen to it and see what they think maybe they'll respond but definitely go on there and encourage them to look at things uh the way the bible actually teaches so yeah get the conversation going there see if they're willing to interact excellent i'm very excited about our guests uh we keep it a secret, right? We just want to be a surprise. But we do have a guest next episode. We have a special guest next week. I'm very excited about the special guest. So. Stay tuned. Um, Adam? Adam? Is, is Adam the special guest? Is he actually going to be on? Or is is that Adam. Not the... <laughs> that's, a, that's our special I believe guest. Adam is going to join us next week, but be praying for him. He just has a really long week at work this week, yeah. so um, little time to spend with his family, so he's taking a break for just this week. Like, today was a short day, 10 hours. Tomorrow, I think we're in 16. It's, like, ridiculous. So, please yeah. pray for that. But, yeah, so don't forget, guys, to connect with us uh, our website, www.postmill.com, uh, for resources and podcasts and articles and all sorts of things there. Uh, don't, don't, please don't be afraid to uh, email us at that, that postmill at what, gmail.com, right? Yeah, dadpostmail at gmail.com. at gmail.com. Um, any questions or anything like that? Oh, I did want to... Uh, I saw a really cool review, Dustin, on iTunes. I don't know, maybe we can save it for next time, but uh, it's a really cool review. Was it the latest one? Uh, I don't know if it's the latest one or not. I can pull it up and we can read it if you want. It's really, it's, it, has to do with, it has to do with scotch. Ooh. Give me one second here. I'm pulling it up. But while he's pulling that up, uh, connect with us on our Facebook, our Facebook page, that personal Facebook page. Uh, keep connected with us there. And uh, and guys, we're trying we're trying to get better hosting and, and, and just have a better ministry for you guys. We're really uh, humbled and delighted by the support that you've been receiving from you guys. So we do have a PayPal account, I believe, right, Dustin? You guys feel uh, led to, yes, to yep. support us at all. We don't need much, but uh, a little bit from, from a few people would help us uh, basically get paid hosting. Stop having crashes and, and the problems that come with, you know, you get what you pay for. So. Yeah. And go on to iTunes, rate and review us. Um, here's one example of an awesome uh, review. I love, this is from hashtag TrueDebtPostMill. That was, that was the title. It's uh, P. Heath is the person. Um, I love this podcast, kind of like how I love a nice scotch. It's smooth, piquant, refreshing, invigorating, pleasurable, and slightly intoxicating in a good way. Keep up the good work, <laughs> fellas. <laughs> that's awesome that has to be my favorite review i think i think that was ron swanson yeah, actually no, that review is actually from pastor Heath watson of grace church at uh my pastor so no nice. way yeah. that's awesome so shout out awesome. to grace church great review good job thank you pastor so we each have to get our pastors to review i know right will do <laughs> all right guys well it's been great um Please don't be shy. Tell us what you think about the show. Tell us if you need want to have any questions answered on air. Maybe we'll get to them. And uh, be hashtagging that post now. I like that. Hey, Knox, I didn't know what you was doing, man. When you was doing all this, but... <laughs> Another one. Let's go.
Walk, talk, eat, drink, sleep, dream. Gospel. Wake, pray, read, dress, work, think. Gospel. Press, fellowship, yes, church, hear, see. Gospel. Everything. Gospel. Everywhere. Everywhere. 